You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Today, we're really thrilled to be joined by Tom Boyke. Again, Tom is Senior Fellow for Global Health Economics and Development and Director of the Global Health Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's the author of a, of a remarkable book, Plagues and the Paradox of Progress, Why the World is Getting Healthier in Worrisome Ways, which, which we had a chance to, to feature in a discussion with Tom when that book came out. He also has founded and, and oversees the Think Global Health series of commentaries, a really successful and highly impactful stream of work that he created that's brought in lots and lots of folks. And so, Tom, this is our 100th episode of the Coronavirus Crisis Update. You are number 100. We started this on February 24th, 2020. So you have the honor of being number 100. But thanks for being with us, Tom. My great pleasure. Thanks for having me, particularly on such a momentous podcast. I've been a <laughs> consumer of these podcasts as they've they've gone along. So it's uh, it's been a remarkable achievement by you and your program. Thank so you. We'll just have to me. work in the word 100 at least 10 times into our conversation. So we're here to speak mostly about the complex controversy surrounding the origins of SARS-CoV-2. We'll get to that in a few minutes. I'd, I'd like to start off with a few minutes of discussion around President Biden's rollout last night, Thursday evening of his six-point plan, which is a pretty remarkable expansion of ambitions by the federal government and in, in, in use of the White House power and, and the power of the federal government. There are six main points in that. The one that's gotten the greatest attention is the expansion of vaccine requirements, which would bring in 100 million workers, two-thirds of the American workforce, under these sets of rules and regulations, if you're an employer with 100 employees, you've got to move towards either vaccination or weekly uh, testing. That's 80 million workers. He's calling for 4 million federal employees or contractors, no testing, move ex uh, full in the next 75 days towards vaccination. He's using those within the health sector, some 17 million employees who are somehow beneficiaries, Medicaid, Medicare, to move in a similar direction. Um, there's a big emphasis on boosters and easing access, big emphasis on schools, expanding vaccination 12 plus, and vaccination teachers and staffs. It's a direct confrontation, Governor DeSantis, Governor Abbott. There's a big emphasis on, finally, on increasing testing and making it more accessible to individuals. $2 billion for $300 million tests that'll be offered at cost through major providers. There's going to be an expansion of the small business loans, which is going to be very important because the small businesses are going to have the toughest time meeting these requirements, I think. And then there's the support to the health system where it's overly strained, and that includes even DOD, bringing back DOD folks into hospitals and clinics around the country. Uh, this is just a remarkable expansion of this. We can talk about how and why, but let's start, Tom. What do you make of this? What do you what do you make of this shift, this reset? So I think a few things. First, I think it's clear that the president's patience 
with the unvaccinated and with the politicians who cater to the unvaccinated has run out. I think that was evident from the speech yesterday. He spoke in uh, very firm terms towards those audiences and his frustration with them. I would have preferred not to see this day come about. I do think from a public health standpoint, the federal government taking role, providing this these broad-based vaccine mandates is going to be challenging in such a partisan time. Are you expecting significant blowback? I am, and I'm also expecting significant litigation in terms of the imposition of these. Now, my own view is there is a strong legal basis for imposing them, but time is of the essence, and having these policies tied up in the courts is going to delay their contribution. In the meantime, the environment around vaccination, I may not improve because of these. I share the president's frustration with the current circumstance. I would have liked to see the private sector, frankly, step up. There's a significant amount of these orders going out to the private sector that simply those companies could have imposed on their own. I don't know if there was a possibility for a White House summit, a high-profile public White House summit, to convince those employers to do this action earlier. I have no doubt, you know, you know the people in the White House like I do, I have no doubt they considered this and perhaps even pursued it and decided to go this option instead. But this is going to uh, back some people into a corner and they will be in that corner while litigation ties up these actions. And it is not a happy day to see this, this come about. I hope they prove effective, but I don't know that they will. You know, it's it's interesting where they have drawn support, right? There's a number of large employers that have already moved in this direction, right? Amazon, Delta, United, you know, there's large employers that have already moved this direction. Josh Bolton, the Business Roundtable, came out overtly in support. Chamber of Commerce did not take a critical stand, was, you know, so this gives cover to a bunch of uh, private sector entities, states charities, NGOs, universities, colleges, along with the licensure, the approval of Pfizer and the ultimate approval of, of Moderna, it's going to get those things in combination, it seems to me, with these mandates, gives cover to a whole bunch of other actors to do things that they've been very hesitant to do now. And assuming things don't get too hung up in the courts, we could see this. The other thing it seems to me is that DeSantis and Abbott and Luce Ducey's stars have begun to fall in the midst of this crisis. If you look at the polling in those states, getting in their face, as the president has, is is in a period in which public opinion is turning in the direction of the White House. And some of the challenges on the on the interference, it's been mixed results, right, in the courts in terms of challenging their ban on district educational districts and the like, putting in mask mandates and the like. Also, DOD, you know, moved in August in the way it did. In the first month, they expanded the the percentages of those with one vaccine by six and a half percent in that population. So there's some momentum and confidence that these mandates can can begin to translate into real numbers. And the sensitivities within DOD are really quite high. I mean, there was a very intense debate in DOD around all of this, and yet 
this happens. And in one month, the percentages rise by six and a half points. The pandemic itself is scaring people. You know, don't you think that the the Delta variant and the direction, I mean, this sort of reset is partly an acknowledgement that the mission accomplished, happy days of July are over, and we're in something that's quite dangerous. And I think people are taking that seriously. What do you think? I think that's true. I do think people are taking this more seriously. And I do think the White House had some momentum, particularly vis-a-vis states that have had poor performance. What I'm not sure is whether or not this mandate will accelerate that momentum or create a political narrative that is advantageous to those governors. I don't know what will ultimately come about. I think there is a narrative here that I hope takes hold, which is particularly for as children have become more susceptible to illness, we see higher rates of hospitalizations involving small children, that that might lead to greater concern for people's neighbors in terms of getting vaccinated. It might disrupt this argument around this just being a matter of individual choice when the consequences for the community become clear. What I, I just do not know is in this interim where we'll have some delay in implementation because of litigation, whether this advances where we were or reverses it, we'll have to see. But I can certainly understand why the White House felt something needed to be done, given the yeah. circumstances. Yeah. I mean, I think they also were trying to reset their reputation, right? Because there's been so much confusion over guidance of late, over boosters and mask guidance, and and the president's numbers have dropped. We've got Afghanistan. He's in the mid-40s. That's a low point. He's He's trying to regain momentum, regain leadership, and get ahead of this. And project competence, project, you know, toughness and realism. The children piece, I think, is really an important element that we're going back to school. There were 30,000 children hospitalized last month. That may seem like a small number in 330 million population, but some of them are getting quite sick. And so I think that plus the, the slip in the economic recovery, I mean, uh, August numbers for job generation, 235,000. That's that's a fraction of what it should be. So there's also the, let's get this private sector back running. And I think that's partly why you're seeing so little resistance and so much overt support coming from the private sector for this. So what's likely to happen in terms of the hardcore? We know there's 15% out there, 13%, 15% that seem to be saying, hell no, maybe if forced, you know, into unemployment, I might do this. But it seems to me that we, we've, we've thrown everything at that population and seen no budge, whereas the movable middle has gone from high 30% six, eight months ago to down to about, I don't know, 10 or 11 points. I could see that shrinking. I could see that number shrinking under this. What do you think is likely to happen among the hardcore? I think you'll see opposition in several forms. You'll see some amount of litigation. You've already had the first public sector union file lawsuit before the announcement was even made. Um, you're seeing states, if they haven't filed already, they're threatening to and will, of course. You'll see some companies do the same. And then you also just see see what you've seen around mass, which is some will just simply fail to comply. 
And you'll see some amount of disobedience from that standpoint. Working through that population is not going to be fast. So the bet here is leaving aside the politics of it, and you raise some really great issues about why this is advantageous for the president. And I agree from a political standpoint why why they think it might be. But the bet here um, from a public health standpoint is there enough of that soft middle, as you described, that when faced with these mandates might finally be pushed over into the yes column and go get vaccinated. There's enough of that to justify the fact that, you know, probably somewhere in that continuum about the convincible, there'll also be people that feel backed into a corner and will move the other direction. I just don't know what how those proportions will sort out. The one thing I do want to say on the private industry that this gives them cover, in my view, they had cover with the FDA approval. And I hear you on the large employers, and there are a number of companies that have stepped up, but there are a lot that have been awfully cautious and willing to wait for the federal government to take what is, at the end of the day, a pretty aggressive public health stance for something that is largely dealt historically at a local level and among employers. This is not a comfortable position for the federal government to be in. And I am, you know, it will not hurt their feelings to hear me say so, but I am disappointed with the private sector for not standing up greater and putting the president in this position. Yeah. One thing I think that deserves mention, two things. One is we've already have, particularly in the hospitality industries, restaurants, resorts, hotels, we have acute staff shortages. We have acute staff shortages in the health provider networks. I mean, I was down in Charlottesville this week. The emergency capacities there in the UVA system, 50% of their nursing force are travelers today. A shocking number. but that, And I think that pattern's true across the country. So will this aggravate shortages as people resign? as they're unsatisfied? Will it put an excess burden on small businesses that are still really struggling and seeing some of their own supports weakening or, you know, being more anxious in this period? The bigger employers are looking at this and thinking, we need cover. I think there's a big difference in the psychology and the vulnerability of small businesses, which many of them have uh, over 100 employees and the like. The enforceability, OSHA, you know, a lot of this is rests on the power, legal power that OSHA has, but the enforceability capacity, the operational capacity of OSHA, when you're talking about 100 million people, I mean, that's like, you're talking about a very, very tiny little agency that's supposed to somehow take on this lion-esque role. I'm a little skeptical there. It's also interesting, like, ultimately, we're going to have to talk about travelers, people that are going international and domestic. We're going to have to talk about travelers. We're going, to, we're going to have to get back to mask mandates. They stay steered clear of that element in this, which is another interesting judgment call. There's not much in there on contact tracing, and we don't have a registry of vaccinations. We have no national registry. We have no credentialing system. And how that's going to be, how that's going to be worked remains a big question, it seems. Yeah, those are good gaps to mention. The other one I was very surprised by is that they didn't apply this to universities and, you know, other tertiary uh, educational institutions. I I don't know why that is. They're huge recipients of federal funds and there are a population that is 
under vaccinated, particularly in some states and around them. So I don't have any understanding. I actually think to me, that's a bigger gap than the traveler's gap, which is a real one. But I have, from what I've seen, I suspect that a lot of the international traveler population is vaccinated. So there might be some benefit to be gained there, but not as much as you might have by applying and, through and the educational system. Industry's moving that way. I mean, the Canadian, the Canadian provider Qantas and the Canadians are moving in that direction. And, you know, the, the leaders in the field like United and Delta, I think they're, they're going to figure this, figure this out. And as far as universities, I think universities and colleges are highly varied in their approaches, but they've been also extraordinarily innovative in many ways. They've drawn on their engineering capacities and their public health and biomedical capacities to do pretty remarkable things in many universities on testing and, and, and vaccinations. And they've innovated significantly in these areas. And they've had to walk the line of what's acceptable politically. And, and a lot of it comes down to who's the governor and who's the, who controls the legislature and can they line up? I mean, you look at what's happened at UVA versus what's happened in Wisconsin or what's happened in other places where you have a lot of division. And you get sort of half measures on vaccination requirements and masking. Yeah. And I think the testing, the testing bit is really important in terms of expanding access to rapid testing and production and trying to reduce pricing cost. Boy, I wish it would have happened earlier because this has been something people have been calling for for months and months and months. So I'm I'm surprised it's taken this long, but I'm, I'm glad to see it. Yeah. Okay, let's let's shift over to this origins debate, which, you know, this is it's hard to find a topic that's become more overheated, more of a flashpoint, more of a point of stalemate and uh, uh, more of volatility. It's gotten wedged into this toxic meltdown between the U.S. and China pre-COVID. Most public health and global health issues we're kind of insulated from this in the U.S.-China relationship. We had a very rich and quite productive level levels of cooperation across R&D, across public health coordination. It wasn't always perfect, but pretty damn rich, you know. Uh, and now that's all in question in this period. And it seems when you look at the behavior in the United States by both officials, but also in the unofficial, in the social media environment, you look in China you look at the official and the and the media environment and social media environment there's bad behavior on all sides that are stoking this right and it's with conspiracies falsehoods paranoias recriminations deflections but and both sides have to some degree turned on their own scientists which is really bizarre too and perverse and dangerous and put them in peril you see story after story of highly regarded highly respected Chinese scientists getting nailed for saying the wrong thing at the wrong moment on some aspects of this. And you see scientists in the United States fearful that certain Republican legislators or proposals that are out there coming from former Secretary Pompeo and others are going to put them under the gun with lots of suspicion associated with this. We obviously went through on the origin stuff. We went through this first exercise of WHO, very poorly handled. Very sloppy. We get to the March thing. Then then Tedros stands up to the Chinese in a pretty dramatic fashion. But now phase two is kind of stuck. It's stuck. And 
The U.S. does the 90-day intelligence. It gets rolled out just recently, but it's totally inconclusive, you know, in terms of no way of judging, still insufficient evidence on both the zoonotic spillover thesis or the lab accident thesis. The only thing they ruled out was bioweapon and life. So here we are. We don't have any clear norm protocol convention for investigations. WHO doesn't have the authority. We know that gain-of-function research has proliferated and democratized all over the world. And yes, there is much higher risk of lab leaks in a weekly controlled, weekly regulated environment. And we know that we need much greater surveillance and much greater sharing of data. But the situation, the nationalist impulses are not to share. So then we get to this question, okay, what are we supposed to do, which is something that you've weighed in on. Different people are approaching this question in different ways, right? WHO has created the SAGO, 25 Diverse Experts Scientific Advisory Group on Origins Novel Pathogens, trying to, okay, they have limited capacities, limited authorities, but let's get the world's best in there and let's prepare for the next operational examination, see if that moves things forward. Frieden, Tom Frieden, Mike Osterholm, others are vocal saying, wait a second, these scientific issues don't get resolved sometimes forever and sometimes not for years and years and years. So what's the rush? What are we talking about? What do we think we're going to learn in the first year or the second year or the third year? And then you've come in with your proposal, you and Yan Zong Wang, and you're, you, you put it a nice short essay in Council on Foreign Relations laying it out. So tell us your concept of how you, well, first of all, tell us how you see this problem and because I'm sure you see it in in more nuance than I've just painted, but also what is it you tell us a bit about what you're suggesting in this mess and is at least one possibility of of trying to show some progress? So uh, a few things to point out here that I think are important. Obviously, the outcome of the U.S. intelligence review is utterly unsurprising that absent China's cooperation and a rigorous independent investigation on Chinese soil, there was no chance that investigation could reach a definitive outcome on whether it was a spillover event with the virus jumping from animals to humans or a product of a uh, a lab accident, the two leading theories. The types of evidence that might answer that question, lab records, medical records of lab employees, you know, testing of various species that might be the intermediary for this virus. All of that is in China. And, you know, U.S. intelligence agencies had none of it. In thinking about moving forward, I think we need to first answer the question, is it important to get an answer here to this issue? And I will argue that it is. And it's important to try to get it sooner than later And then we'll talk about what it's important for and what it perhaps is not useful for in terms of what people think it might be. Um, The reason why I think it's important to get an answer is from what I can see coming out of this pandemic, we're, we're in this policy moment. Everyone is talking about what we need for pandemic preparedness, how we can invest in states to build up their capacity to you know, detect and contain and respond to future dangerous disease events, you know, what we can see from a faster vaccine development and production and how to distribute manufacturing worldwide, lots of conversations on surveillance. I hear very little on prevention. 
And I think the reason why we hear so little on pandemic prevention is because we don't know how this pandemic started. And unlike all the other initiatives that I just listed, which are responding to failings that were identified in this pandemic, not knowing what led to this particular pandemic really hampers the momentum to build a robust prevention agenda. And we're going to be in a limited policy window and we need to take advantage of it. And the lack of that information is important. On that point, does this mean that we should, as a matter of prevention strategy, be pushing hard against the idea of disinvesting in groups like Echo Health Alliance? I mean, which are, in fact, trying to tackle this upstream, you know, animal species crossover, zoonotic spillover and build our knowledge in that way. And, and, and yet it is in the firing line. It is being stigmatized and attacked and investigated. But if if we're serious about prevention, we're going to need if, if if it gets destroyed, we're going to have to recreate something like that. It seems so. On my list for prevention, things I would like to see really higher, even than the kind of work Echo Alliance does, are you know rigorous lab safety standards, enforceable and cooperation around that, a more enforcement of on ending the wildlife trade in wet markets. I think the type of research you're talking about is useful, but it is dangerous. And people have said this for a period of time. You know, Echo Alliance was, particularly prior to this pandemic, a very well-regarded institution and well-regarded group. I think there is a place for that research. I think we need to be careful about how we conduct it. But if you had me prioritize what I want to see around prevention, I have much more hope for the disciplines around the wildlife trade and lab safety than us guessing the evolution of the right virus ahead of time, personally. But I don't think there's any momentum currently around this lab safety issue globally or really around the wildlife trade. And that's because we don't know how this pandemic started. But the other second reason why it's important to get an answer to this, it really is shutting down a lot of global cooperation on, you know, governance reforms we might need to be able to respond better in the future. And it will hamper our ability to establish surveillance networks if we can't have the U.S. and China participating in the same one together. So it's safe to say, I mean, we're at this big moment in history where we're trying to think about these problems. There's been the opportunity for any kind of dialogue with the Chinese on these matters is broken. It's likely to remain broken for the indefinite future, but you have to think that long term, the national interests of both countries are going to pull in the direction of resume collaboration, but it ain't going to happen for some time. So you have to have work around. That's right. But the key thing to understanding both of those points, and it sounds like we agree on those, is that that requires whatever result from this origins investigation to produce more cooperation between the U.S. and China, not less. And, you know, I think there's a perception out there, particularly currently among some Republicans, but, you know, sometimes more broadly, that this is important to know so that China might be punished. And I think people are misguided in terms of the tools available to punish China for something like this. A lab accident isn't a violation of international law. It would be incredibly difficult to impose any form of damages 
for failure to for a cover up under the international health regulations. There's no real enforcement mechanism. Customary international law wouldn't require compensation to be paid under those circumstances. Good luck getting a U.N. set of sanctions, given that China is a permanent member of the Security Council. I mean, the U.S. could try to waive China's protections under Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act. And there are, you know, that currently bar domestic lawsuits, but you would still need to be able to prove causation for damages, which would be hard, given that the U.S. has done poorly and many other nations haven't. And it's tough to say that China is responsible for all of that. In these circumstances, all this is to say, I appreciate there are geopolitical consequences if China covered up an accident and that led to this pandemic. And they could be severe. One thing that we've talked about internally is this could be a 1947 type moment where, you know, the the scales fall off people's eyes and they realize that the Soviet Union in that moment wasn't going to be leaving Europe. And people appreciated what their real intentions were. This could be a scales falling off the eyes people moment in appreciating China's ability to be transparent. But it wouldn't lead to any broader punishment beyond that reputational damage. It also wouldn't lead to making us safer from the next pandemic, which at the end of the day has to happen through cooperation. So whatever we do with an investigation, if the U.S. wants to keep investigating this from an intelligence standpoint, and there are people calling for that to continue, there were letters that came out after that investigation concluded, there needs to be a core of this this, that is happening at a technical level and between scientists in terms of advancing our understanding of how this pandemic started so that we can start to build the basis for cooperating around whatever information emerges from that process, because if it doesn't yield more cooperation, it will not make us safer. My own personal view is that cannot occur at the WHO. And really, the only avenue that I can think of absent that is through national academies, a coalition of national academies working together. I'm not naive. I can't say this is likely to succeed. I just think it's more likely to succeed than the alternatives. Does that include your notion of academies collaborating? Does that, in effect, become a kind of proxy set of consult, a sort of negotiation 1.50 or 2.0 type of consultations and deliberations? In other words, it's a sort of track two or track 1.5 that you're thinking of with the academies giving some cover. There's precedence for this. There's precedents you can point to, but is that what you have in mind, that this would be a step removed from official? And somehow that's where the two sides might begin to ease the punishing threats that they're issuing against their own scientists, particularly the Chinese. I mean, I was in discussion with our embassy in Beijing earlier this week, and um, and we at CSIS and our commission, we've been we're putting together a paper on options, of, and Yan Zong is one of the co-authors, a paper on very practical options of collaboration with the Chinese, where we're saying, look, if you look at these five or six sectors, we're stupid if we stop collaborating because it's going to harm us. And here are the here's what they are, and these are the actions that should be taken. And when we talk to people in official positions in the United States government, they're like, no. No way can this happen. And then when you talk about is there an interest on the Chinese side, they go, 
let us just give you five examples of scientists who've stuck their necks out and and had them cut off or slammed in order to make clear that this kind of track 1.5 or 2.0 is is now verboten for the time being. But that's not necessarily a permanent thing. Yeah, no, exactly. That is what we have in mind. And I think it's really the only space available. I mean, it's a dark environment from a global health perspective where the perception is the one unifying principle that can unite the parties in the United States and bridge partisanship. And people say this all the time is standing up to China is the one thing that people think might actually unite the country is standing up to China. And while, you know, I and we put out a task force report um, that looked at how China acted early in the pandemic, I think there's much to be quite upset with China about in terms of how this has gone. The fact remains that there is no circumstance coming out of this pandemic and thinking about future pandemics or even later elements of response to this pandemic that will not work better if the U.S. and China can cooperate together. There's no prospect for real enforcement of lab safety if the U.S. and China are not both on board. There's no prospect of ending the wildlife trade in wet markets if China is not on board. Um, you can go down the list. There's no prospect of a pandemic treaty or even revisiting or reopening the IHR through some sort of review conference. None of that happens unless we can find some way of moving this towards the technical folks and less around each country's political interests in opposing each other. Right. And, you know, we have reached a point, we've seen this this week with the president, President Biden calling President Xi, first conversation since February, after we had a period when the climate envoy, former Secretary Kerry, was shuttled off to Tianjin and denied access to Xi or to the uh, other other very high-level folks he wanted to see. Some similar experience, Deputy Secretary Wendy Sherman experienced. So there's a search now for, okay, let's take this to the higher level and figure out, okay, how are we going to walk some of this deterioration back? And it's then that you would hope that you could begin to break off some of these very practical but very important areas where there needs to be deliberation and somehow do that without getting back into the box on the origin, toxic origin problem. It's got to be somewhere away from that, it seems to me, because that's just so hot. If anything gets back close to that, you're immediately back in the the no-go lane. Right. And again, the possibility of shifting this off to a, a group of national academies is really the only way I can see how that happens um, without having WHO, you know, basically continue to be the victim of that debate, which is the more this happens there, the more it draws that institution in it. And it just does not have the ability to navigate those politics in a way that doesn't damage the director general or damage the institution. and you know, doesn't provide for that, that goal of shifting this off towards the technical folks and out of. So are you, are you deeply skeptical of the value of Dr. Tedros creating SAGO, this new advisory group and populating it with 25 very diverse disciplinary and in terms of discipline, very diverse in terms of 
national origin, but very high, high reputation and uh, globally. I am skeptical of its prospects of success. I appreciate the director general's interest in doing it and why he's doing it. And I'm glad they're shifting it towards a scientific venue or at least a group of scientists to have it. But I think anything that emerges from that process will be seen through the prism of how people perceive WHO's performance on these issues in general in the pandemic. And I would rather see them leave it to someone else. Because, I mean, when you look at the legacy of Tedros' first term, which will conclude on July 1st next year. And this month, he has to declare his candidacy for a second term. And anyone else who's moved things forward to qualify has to declare as well. But during his first term, one of the things that I think he gets a lot of praise for is new senior level positions for career scientists and populating them with people who are pretty impressive, right? Sumya. Swami Nathan, uh, Maria van Kerkhoff, and on and on. There's at the upper reaches, there are people that whose scientific credibility is pretty unassailable. I think that's true. And I even think among some of the regions, you know, one of the big complaints, as you know well, coming out of Ebola, were the thought that some of the regions might be staffed more as a matter of patronage than qualifications. And I think they've moved in the right direction on a lot of those issues as well. Tom, we end each of these things with a turn to the question to our guest of what gives you the greatest hope and optimism looking ahead. This, we're, we, As you said it, the topic that's the central topic of this conversation is a dark place. So take us out of darkness and where's the light, Tom? I, I think there's a reinvigorated conversation around the possibility of having more vaccine supply and what we should be able to do with it. And I think that's starting to bring governments together. And I hope they seize that opportunity to lay the groundwork, not only for a robust response by the first quarter of next year, where we really should be aiming to hit some of our vaccination targets, but also to set the stage for making possible everything that has to happen to make us safer from future pandemics. Because from a low and middle income country standpoint, if we cannot, if there isn't this prospect of addressing countries' needs in a pandemic in some timely way, our agenda around surveillance, our agenda around international governance reforms, all fall down as something that would benefit only the wealthy that have the tools to protect themselves. So I'm hoping we have, we seize this opportunity for robust response so that we can save lives now, but also create the basis for doing so in the future. Thank you. That's very eloquent and powerful. Close. So I think you've done your job, Tom. You've given us a, a nice jolt there of light at the conclusion here. So thanks for being with us. Thanks for your leadership and your multiple contributions to this field, which are just invaluable and, and so exceptional. And thanks for coming back and being with us this afternoon. Thanks. And thanks for having me. And congratulations again on your 100th episode. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't say I'm 100 a dozen times, but... I had to get it in one more there. All right. <laughs> thanks so much. Take care. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Bulver and Samantha Chivers. 
You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS 2021, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts. Thank you.